I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Einstein once said, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. Today's guest has turned her curiosity into her talent and her business. Well, Eliane Miles, welcome to Short Black. Thank you for coming in. It's great to be here, Sandra. I know you're a social researcher and strategist. You run a company called The Curious Co. Tell me what is The Curious Co.? The Curious Co. is a social trends consultancy. So effectively, the core of what we do is build organisational confidence by helping leaders to understand what's happening outside of their immediate business environment. Now, what's happening outside is pretty scary when you look at the stats. It is, and it's multifaceted, and we find a lot of business leaders are uh, heads down doing what they know how to do and, and don't necessarily look at the broader context, maybe the demographics, the social change, generational transitions some of the economic times that we're in and how to respond um, to the consumer environment in a way that's appropriate and that moves with the times. So you've said one in five Australians who were not born here actually came here since 2012. Capital cities are growing twice as fast as regional areas and we are living in a community that is shifting and our nation is changing before our eyes. But are we ready to deal with it? I think we're seeing huge shifts in our communities where, as you say, we have um, the traditional way of life that we maybe uh, were used to, the the game of uh, cricket in the backyard, uh, living in detached houses. We're now seeing population growth that was never perceived um, to take place. Even, you know, population analysts 30 years ago, they were way, way below what we're actually seeing now in terms of our cities, uh, the way that our communities are growing and having to respond to some of those changes. We're seeing it all around us when we look at the cranes in the sky and uh, seeing our capital cities in terms of the congestion and the increase in house prices. But our attitudes haven't necessarily kept pace, I think, and, and that's definitely true. Well, the data's pretty scary. I mean, you've said Melbourne's growing by 125,000 people every year. That's the size of Darwin and Ballarat. Absolutely. It's astounding. <laughs> and, and what do you do with that growth? You have to build the infrastructure to keep pace. And And much of that growth, two-thirds of it, is through overseas migration. And so our communities are becoming more culturally diverse. Uh, We're seeing the need for us to be able to engage people uh, who think very different from us. And I think most of us, even if we're not in business, we see that when we we think about the next generations, often the challenges of the intergenerational communication. How do I connect with my grandchildren and what's real for them? You know, some futurists tell us that in the next 20 years, we'll see more changes to humanity than we've seen in the last 300. So that the pace and the rate of change and our need to adapt is is incredible. What sort of companies are employing you to give them some insights into the future? It's companies across every industry, every sector. I work with a lot of not-for-profit organisations who are trying to keep pace with a very rapidly changing consumer environment. For example, the aged care sector where all of the power has now been given to the consumer, 
uh, where traditional organizations were given aged care packages from the government that they would then distribute. Now the power is in the hands of the person needing care, and so they can go to any startup, any new provider in the space. And so it's really about traditional companies working out how to maintain their, their niche and, and their connection with, with their consumer. Can you give me an example, and you don't have to name the company, but what's a present conundrum that would be presented to you as, as a business issue? One of the, the things that commonly comes to me is this challenge of employee engagement. So we know from the data that almost half of workers are looking for another job in the next 12 months. That means the half of Australian workers are not necessarily happy with where they're at. And most employers are struggling with how do we engage these employees? How do we invite them into something that is purposeful? And so the invitation that I often have is to gather groups of people into collaborative workshops around what is happening in the future and in using that medium as a platform through which to engage employees around the conversation of what's taking shape. So rather than seeing this top-down hierarchical leadership structure that we were once used to, we now see business leaders putting on strategy days or corporate events where they're inviting not just middle management, but the entire plethora of employees into the conversation about what's taking shape in the future and inviting some of the ideas to happen from the bottom up. That says to me that businesses are really grappling with what millennials want how to keep employees of the future engaged and want to hang around. I mean, I find even at 10, and that's just, you know, a limited insight, but it is really hard because their priorities are so different. Why do they not want to stick it out and pay off a mortgage or get a mortgage? <laughs> you know, my parents and my demographic basically head down, bum up, work their tushes off, the other side of the coin for them is a reality of, of very disparaging income inequalities in Australia. So what the, do you mean by that? The top 20% of our community owns 92 times the amount that the bottom 20% owns in terms of private wealth and earns 12 times the amount that the bottom 20% earns. And so for young people, uh, many of whom are at the bottom of that income sort of income scale, they do feel they've been left out. When you look at the data that's been released by Grattan just recently, it actually shows that the income for those under 34 has decreased in terms of real time, in, in terms of real it's cash value. It's not even stagnating. It's, it's not even stagnating. Back, and so going that, I think that feeling of going backwards, never mind the increase in house prices, it just means that young people for the first time ever feel, and, and in some ways it's real, they will be financially worse off than their parents' generation. And I think there's a bit of a response to that taking place. Now, how they choose to respond <laughs> is, uh, you know, I think there's got to be more wisdom perhaps uh, with putting in the hard yards, but it is a reality that they're facing and therefore choosing to do life differently. They're, they're increasingly mobile. They're choosing experiences over assets. They're wanting, I guess, a different type of lifestyle as a result of seeing that things are just a little bit unattainable for them. Yeah, I don't want it to be a them versus us. Um, and, you know, but I can't deny the demographic I'm in and also the anecdotal evidence I hear around me constantly. And I look at, <clears throat> excuse me, and I look at those younger generations and say, you carry a heck of a lot more debt than I would ever consider being reasonable. I mean, 30% carry three times more debt than their annual income. That's crazy. Yeah, we're, we're incredibly over-indebted at the moment. And much of that is household debt. That desire to own a property, the desire to be homeowners is still incredibly strong. 
But the challenge is ripe. So, so currently I'm working with a major provider of uh, social housing in Australia for, for women. And we've just recently been all around the country speaking to low-income women in regional areas about the challenges they face in terms of housing affordability. And for most of them, that dream is out of reach. You know, just last week, I spoke to one woman in a regional community who's on $25,000 per year, raising three children on her own and making do with that. I think, you know, there's women doing incredible things across our nation, young women Mm -hmm. uh, putting in the hard yards and and doing the best they can. But it's certainly a challenge uh, for most. Look, I don't want to bag the next generation. This is all about understanding who they Mm. are. And they're very different, aren't they? I mean, they're, if you're an employee trying to manage new staff, they on average consider staying in the workforce no longer than about a year and eight months. I mean, I find that gobsmacking. How can you consider a career that may only last a year and eight months? Young people, they are looking to contribute. They're looking to be challenged. Uh, they're looking to be celebrated. And if they don't feel that they can access those types of things in a workplace community, they will move on. And that is a challenge. Uh, in a previous role, when I, I, was, I had the privilege of, of onboarding a lot of Generation Zs fresh out of, out of uni, and it was fascinating to see them rise into positions of leadership very quickly. And we gave them so many opportunities to be leaders and to, to present to clients right off the bat to have a huge amount of responsibility. And we saw them rise to that occasion. We'd have uni grads within four to six months become team leaders and really rise to the occasion. And that was a key way that we were able to engage them and retain them for, say, two, two and a half to three years because they realised that they had a seat at the table uh, before they were wanting to move on. You've also said young people today are likely to have 17 jobs across five careers in a lifetime. That's just staggering. It's staggering when you think that by 2030, 85% of us will be working in roles that don't yet exist. It makes sense. It means that all of us have to be constantly adapting and um, reinventing ourselves in order to stay relevant to today's workforce. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can keep the same skills that we learned in an undergraduate degree 15 years ago and still be relevant to a future employer in 10 years' time. It just doesn't make sense. And so the the challenge for all of us is how do we continue to learn on the job? How do we upskill? And it's on, on the tools learning. You know, being able to start a role tomorrow where you know you don't have all the skills, but by Wednesday having to implement something that you might have had to learn even past the hours of midnight in order to, to do on, on the job. You said the majority of us will be employed in jobs we don't even know yet exist. Have you got any idea what they look like? Just take, if we go backwards and take the example of a social media manager. Now, that's a very common role. Most businesses have them. They didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Everyone would have thought you were crazy employing someone to write tweets for you all day. You know, that's an example of a transition that happened very quickly. We look forward into the span of the future. We see the fields emerging of, in robotics. Uh, we see a lot of programming of uh, robotic machinery, nanotechnology, Uh, We see all sorts of fields emerging where we don't know a lot yet, but where human intelligence will need to be used to make use of of machines and robotic learning in the best way possible. You believe that the next generation really are chasing experiences, but as employees, to keep them engaged, to keep them hungry, businesses need to reconsider how they keep them engaged. What do you mean by that? When we talk about employee engagement, you know, the first thing that perhaps from a people and culture perspective you think of is, oh, what are the benefits that they're getting or 
What are the additional perks that they get out of their contract? But for young people these days, it's not about the employment contract. It's not just about what's written on paper. What they're looking for is workplace communities. They're looking for an engaging workplace culture where workplaces have become really their family. You know, in an environment where young people are moving, uh, moving countries, they're moving cities, uh, they're moving jobs more frequently than ever. And the family unit is no longer as intact as it might have been a generation or two ago. The workplace becomes that social place of connection. And so creating uh, really healthy workplace cultures where people love to come to work, they love to be there. That's the the key thing uh, when it comes to engaging them at work. So employers are really challenged about maintaining the vibe, really, you know, giving them a challenge to not just take their seat, but take a seat at the table. That's right. And maintaining the vibe isn't necessarily something that board directors uh, like to put a budget towards. It's not something that's necessarily a tangible that can be measured. And yet it's those intangibles that actually are worth far more to the bottom line than we might think. You've also mentioned that they want to be celebrated. And, you know, that kind of gets me riled a bit because I think, really, you know, you're 12. Like, come on, <laughs> earn your way. Why do you need to get a ribbon you, just for participating? So I understand. What, what is, that? is that? Is that where it stems from? I hear, I hear so many people say exactly the same thing as you've just said, Sandra. Why have we had to give them ribbons for participation? Since Lots of they pats were on the head and pats on the back and, you know, what, take them to lunch, you've done really well. Have we done that too much? Have we? Oh, there's, there's, there's a bit of a balance here, isn't there? I mean, yes, they've or got to... Or imbalance. <laughs> <laughs> they've, got to, they've got to earn some of that, but there is a place for it. I think if, if we never celebrate the wins, we never celebrate the achievements and we get to the end of certain deadlines or certain milestones and we don't stop to acknowledge that we've all worked really, really hard to get there, what motivation is there to start on the next project if we just kind of gloss over the achievements that we've built together sure. as a team? But I can't help but think they're addicted to the dopamine hit. You know, the Instagrammers, the rest of them, you know, need a hit, a constant screen hit in their life every day. I mean, how much time do we spend on screens now as opposed to 10 years ago? So research is showing that we're spending over 10 hours on screen. So that's not linear time. A day? A day. So it's not chronological time. We might be multi-screening, looking at our smartphone while we're watching television, while we're reading on our iPad at the same time. Now, we're seeing some counter movements. I've recently been inspired by Cal Newport's digital minimalism and trying to implement some of those things in my own life, recognizing that Many of these systems are designed to allure us into that dopamine hit. And yet that is the reality for many young people. The online world is, in fact, much more real than the offline world. And so curating their online brand presence, their brand image can sometimes seem more important than cultivating real life connections and relationships. Bloody hell. (laughs) I think your focus is all wrong, but it doesn't matter what I think. You break down the generations in the community to six, but four in the workforce. You say boomers, 1946 to 64, Gen X, 65 to 79, Gen Y, 1980 to 94, Gen Z, 1995 to 2009. Gen Y and Z comprise about two-thirds of our workforce. So even if we don't want to know about these dopamine-addicted juveniles... Which they're not all like that. No, no, I'm (laughs) only kidding to our millennials who are listening. Um, But it's trying to understand who they are and what they want. I mean, their needs are vastly different to what mine were. I just wanted to earn some money and save up to travel. And, you know, I'm talking a five-year savings plan. 
I think many of them, if they're switched on, they're um, getting into workplaces where they see inefficiencies. They see that they're not going to be able to have a seat at the table very quickly. And they're motivated to move sideways rather than upwards in that organization. And so they think, well, I could actually do that better. And so we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurship arising in that generation. You know, they're not all dopamine addicted. A lot of them are now recognizing that consistent social media access isn't necessarily bettering our mental health. And yet I think the entrepreneurialism that is true for that generation can be harnessed into something really unique, can be harnessed into innovation, doing things differently, being able to keep up with some of the rapid change that we're seeing in our communities in terms of how people absorb content, how they want to engage uh, with the news, how they want to um, do community. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's no question we're being challenged on every front about having a conscience in the workplace, socially, personally, professionally. And gets down to aligning values, doesn't it? And, and values for those last two generations in the workforce are significantly important. It was all about hard work. It was all about being able to, to honour your leaders. Uh, it was all about doing things well, excellence. What is it now? I wouldn't say that it's different. I think the the values of the next generations, perhaps uh, they're aspirational. Uh, I think for them, it is about making a difference. The causes drive them. You look at the protests we've seen against climate change, um, some of the social issues in our communities. Young people do feel that it's time for the power to go to, to the masses. And one of the, the questions I know you've asked your listeners is what keeps you up at night? What, what are the, the issues that we might see and the challenges? And I think across the globe now, we're seeing a generation of young people who've said, actually, I'm fed up. I've had enough. And so we're seeing power go to the people with protests in Hong Kong, protests in Santiago. We're seeing whole generations of young people across the globe rising up to say, actually, I, I don't want things to be this unequal anymore. And the technology that harnesses the masses to rise up and to, to speak what they believe in. You talk a lot about us being in the information age and really this last generation or two are in a digitally transformed age. We now live in a world where there's more data created in the last two years than the history of civilization. That is gobsmacking, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And the result of that is that we need to become more savvy with working out what we're being told and what's actually important. Across the board, we have shorter attention spans. We have rising anxiety. We're, we're all trying to understand what messages we filter in and which ones we filter out. And, and I think that's created a little bit of tension around the information age that we live in. One of the things that I find inspiring was a, a quote by Stephen Covey, the leadership expert, and he said, out of pure necessity, the age of wisdom will follow the age of information. And so it, I think we are entering this age of wisdom where we collectively need to work out what are the important messages, what are the values that drive us, what are the characteristics that are going to help build a cohesive society rather than just the bombardment of information that we're given by marketers? 
What is our attention span at the moment? Our attention spans have dropped from 12 seconds in the year 2000, (laughs) which was remarkable, down to eight seconds, which means we can stay tuned for less than the span of a goldfish. What's the attention span of a goldfish? The goldfish can stay tuned for nine seconds and we've regressed to eight seconds. Someone's actually studied that. They have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Also as a consequence of the global digital world that we've all found ourselves in, as it is an increasing level of distress, and you point to the fact that the next generations, the current generations, are feeling it and aren't comfortable with it. Yeah, I think there's a low-level sense of anxiety about where the world's headed at the moment. We're seeing that and pulses of that throughout the globe. Mental health. Mental health challenges. We're seeing crises in some of the developed countries around the world. Uh, in developing countries on our front doors. I think it's the mental health challenges, not just for, for teenagers, but even for the next generations, Gen Alpha coming through. We're noticing far more anxiety in preschoolers and, and primary school children than we've ever seen before as well. Okay, so what? Alpha comes after Z? That's right. Alpha's. No, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> the ones born since 2010, those under the age of nine. Oh, man, I'm feeling really old. Anyway, so. Okay, they're aware. I think we're all aware and we're all uncomfortable and we all acknowledge that, you know, mental ill health is exploding around us and we don't quite know why. And I think what you're doing is helping us understand why people are increasingly feeling isolated and seeking out their tribes in much in a smaller, more meaningful way. And arguably, is that the reason why there's this push to be grounded, stay connected, find your own way to unplug, as it were. I think definitely we're we're seeing this huge crisis of disconnection where people have more information than ever before but have less genuine, true connections with real human beings than they've had in the past. And so the move towards the unplugging, uh, the disconnection from technology is just the initial response to that. I think we need to go a little bit further to cultivating genuine connections and authentic relationships in our communities and perhaps doing that at the expense of not having our social media profiles up to date or looking the part wherever we go. Is the dilemma for you not just delivering the facts but the reasons why or how does a social researcher just deliver these hard truths without having to flesh out you know, the whys and where to behind it. Is that an awkward position you're often put in from a business perspective? It is. At times, I think that I have those conversations when I'm asked to dig a little bit deeper. I think my role is to challenge assumptions and to challenge ways of working to make people think a little bit deeper. And if they want to go there, I'm more than happy to have that conversation. I think some of that comes down to my own personal values and my own personal faith and some of the ways that I would answer, you know, why is that the case comes down to, I think, the value I place on people and on humanity. Whether people want to go there is really up to them. How do you get the data? What's your methodology? It's really a process of combining insights from lots of different data sources. It's really the the combination of looking at spreadsheets from government agencies through to looking at reports done by global consultancies through to conducting new primary research that really takes the pulse of what people are feeling at the moment and combining all of that together into the insights that I share. 
What made you want to tackle this line of work? Because it sounds <laughs> to me like you're just fascinated with the human condition. I am. It, it is. I have to say, like many people who end up in business, I feel that I was given a little bit of a, a helping hand getting there. And I, I think one of the, the key things for this generation is to, to recognise that we don't operate as silos. And certainly in my own career, I don't feel that I've paved the way there on my own. I was able to work alongside some really, really fabulous, interesting thought leaders in this space, uh, one of whom is a great demographer in our nation by the name of Mark McCrindle, who really invited me into the process of how he does some of his social analytics. I worked closely with him for five years and was able to, I guess, develop my own craft working alongside him. I think I kind of fell into it. I wasn't something I ever thought that I would end up in. My background, uh, I moved to Australia when I was 19 to study leadership and theology. So I actually worked in a faith-based environment running youth groups Mm -hmm. um, and doing youth work for quite some time prior to entering the world of research and social analysis. You've really dressed and added some clothes to this mythical millennial person that, you know, I'm constantly confronted (laughs) with, including my daughter. Um, Not so mythical, but um, challenged. I find it really challenging to understand why they think the way they do. You often say that we are demographically transformed, globally connected, economically transitioning, generationally redefined and information empowered. And when we get to the end of that road, we're really returning to a world of simplicity. It is absolutely the case. I think never before have we craved the simple life in the way that we do now. We're seeing that through moves of minimalism where you declutter your entire house and therefore find some sense of balance. <laughs> I mean, we all outsource increasingly so, We're increasingly we? outsourcing to try to gain back time and willing to pay a premium to do that. We're wanting to somehow harness the simple life and to cut away the clutter so that we can think clearly. I outsource as much as I can. <laughs> I know how to clean. I don't need to relearn it, you know. So why, why would I waste time cleaning when I can afford to pay a cleaner who's been in my life for over 20 years Increasingly, things like meal preparation, gardening, people are outsourcing everything. They are. You know, I'm in a season where I've kind of gone the other way. I had a baby only 14 months ago, and I've recently realised there's a lot that has to be done on the hands-on front uh, that does involve repetitive tasks. And and I can see why people outsource these things, (laughs) because they are mundane and they do take away from that precious family time that you've got when you're juggling business and work and, and family life. And, and so it is, uh, I think people are looking for that simplicity to just put their time towards what matters most to them. It, it doesn't matter what you earn. At the end of the day, everyone is time poor. And time now is almost the most valuable commodity. I think it's gold. You can't buy time. If you could, gosh, I'd be saving up for, you know, a century. Mm, and m- many Australians now say they feel rushed and pressed for time. It was a study by the ABS that was, I think, was six or seven years old now. It said 42% of us are rushed or oppressed for time. I think the reality that is in, in most of our capital cities, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who said, oh, no, no, I'm not rushed or oppressed for time. Some of that is a, a reconfiguration of our values and our priorities, I believe. And we will be challenged to strip back our lives and to slow down, to give time to the things that matter to us again. And instead of do trying to do everything. And I think that's a learning. I think that's yet to come for this generation as well. What's your timeline for the Age of Wisdom? When do you think we'll be there? Because I, I want to, you know, if I could buy time, I'd be there tomorrow. 
I, I think a lot of that depends on the leaders who help to shape the, the discourse in our communities and those who are willing to stick up for the slowing down and to say, actually, we cannot continue at this pace and we need to somehow recalibrate. I think those are the leaders that we'll be able to aspire to and to look to to help us enter that age of wisdom. One of the other trends you've identified is an end of ownership. People just want access, but they don't want to own anything. What do you mean by that? I think the younger generations in particular observed those before them really prioritising the accumulation of houses and cars. Stuff. Stuff. It's just stuff. Clutter, really, nowadays. Many young people now are recognising that they want the experience. They don't want the material goods. So why own a car if you can use one to get from A to B and then not have to worry about maintaining it or storing it? Is this what you mean when you talk about the experience economy? It is. It's about the experience of, of getting from A to B rather than the experience of perhaps owning a car and having to maintain it. So the experience economy is all about the time that you use and, and how you live your lifestyle rather than, I guess, being inconvenienced by ownership. In many respects, the next couple of generations really challenge us to think smarter because that just makes a lot of sense. It does make sense, doesn't it? It does make sense. By the time you pay off your car, it's nearly dead. You've got to buy a new one. You're back in debt again. It it is. I mean, there's a bit of dichotomy there because they still want to own their houses eventually. But I think there's many years in which young people, as they're leaving their parents' home, entering university, travelling overseas, there's a long period of time where they just don't see the need for accumulation of material goods. You call them the kippers. Explain that for me. So the kippers are those who are kids in parents' pockets eroding retirement savings. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have more young people uh, staying at home living with their parents just because of the sheer cost of living. Yeah. So that's dwindling our superannuation accounts of our parents, perhaps. When you talk about the experience economy, I can think of so many examples where people really do just chase the moment as opposed to you know, the burden of ownership. And you referred to an incident overseas where there was a private jet. Explain that one. (laughs) So there's an experience uh, provider in Russia that allows young people to have this very niche experience on a private jet where they come in and have a full photo shoot, have their hair done, their makeup, uh, get a glass of champagne and have a photo shoot of themselves in a private jet. Now, the only issue is that that jet actually never leaves the tarmac so the experience <laughs> is really the aura of the experience it's capturing not, the moment it's capturing the moment it's not there. like these women ever really have the money to afford a private jet is uh, it just women I mean I'm sure it's both I, th- I think it's both it's yeah. not just women but it, it highlights that young people for, for some young people it's the appearance of the experience that's even more important than the experience itself so you've got pop-up museums and all sorts of realities now where people can capture the moment rather than actually being in the moment. <laughs> Whether or not we think that's right or not is another question. Yeah, I guess-, I, I guess it's a challenge for marketers to create experiences across every level because that's what young people are now used to. And so if you're a not-for-profit trying to get a, a young donor base, you've got to be providing just as great of an experience as a young person gets from a telco, for example. Gosh, the road ahead is just littered with potholes, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not feeling confident. Although I am feeling inspired talking to you. I do feel like you never stop learning and if you keep your eyes open, those around you do teach you a lot, don't they? They do and we're seeing reverse mentoring now where young people are coming in, spending time with CEOs and us learning together. I think that's really what it's about because 
young people have their finger on the pulse and there's a lot we can learn from them. There's one little rub I have with that, Eliane. There's one little rub. (laughs) (laughs) The rub I have is sometimes that next generation aren't interested with the wisdom that surrounds them. They would be more likely to take on board wisdom from someone in their demographic as opposed to someone who's had 20 years in the game that knows a heck of a lot more. I have to tell you, Sandra, I am guilty of this one, a classic generational thing. I'm guilty of thinking I know more than I do. And I, where does that come from? I don't know whether it's a generational thing, whether how it's old how are you? I, I'm 31. Okay, you're a what, baby. To <laughs> <laughs> me, that's okay. Keep well, going. Whether it's the way that my parents raised me, I'm not quite sure. But I think that's an area where young people need to grow because I think there's a lot to be learned, and being a little bit slower to speak and a little bit quicker to listen, I think, can help all of us, uh, not just young people. I full heartedly agree with you on that one. Phew. Glad I got right about I have to say, though, <laughs> that skill, that quality has meant that I've taken leaps that I never would have because I've believed I'm capable of things, even if I wasn't really capable of doing them. Yeah, well, that's another way to look at it. All right, then, I'll accept that, <laughs> Eliane. Now, you talk about wisdom. Uh, the wisdom age will be about trust being the premium commodity. So, A, I can't wait to get to the wisdom age, but everything seems to be coming back to aligning values and authenticity. It is. We live in a state of distrust at the moment. We have seen data across our own country where Australians were asked, have they benefited from the economic growth we've seen in this nation? And 75% say that large corporations and business leaders have benefited but only 5% of the population believe that they themselves have benefited in some way from our 28 years of unprecedented or economic growth. You know, mm. there's, there's something there where we are distrustful of leadership, we're distrustful of authority, we're distrustful of the media, we're distrustful of pretty much anyone who's not like us. And the way to get back to trust will be to build in trust into brands, trust into communications, Uh, that helps to build that foundation again and seeing trust as that premium commodity. Now, I know because a little birdie told me, you were very wary about talking to me today. (laughs) I've heard some of the questions that you ask and they do scare me. You were scared today, (laughs) were you? A little bit, I have to say. No, I think the conversation's been enlightening. I am fascinated with what you do. Thank you. And I have learnt so much. You've really taught me today that the next couple of generations um, have a heck of a lot more to offer. Now, I always thought that and knew that but I think I appreciate it now on a different level and really that's your area of expertise isn't it? If I can help people to see things in a different light I've done my job I think (laughs) so thank you. Thank you for coming in Eliane Miles what a joy to speak to you and uh, I can't wait to chat to you again but also to find out more observations from the Curious Co. Thank you. Excellent thanks so much. You have been listening to Short Black a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hello, my name's James Matheson. Once you finish listening to this podcast, why don't you head over to Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Each week, Luke Toki and I break down every immunity, alliance and blindside the world's greatest game has to offer. So grab your torches and I'll see you over at Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.